Welcome to the Thrive Theology Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Bethany. We're two Christian women who aim to be grounded in the Word and understand how it applies to our lives. We're passionate about making Christian theology accessible for every woman and equipping others to seek an intimate relationship with Christ. Stay tuned as we dive into today's topic. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive Theology Podcast. Today, we are going to be continuing our discussion from last week about head coverings. So last week, we talked about the Roman and Greek customs at the time, because a lot of people bring into question cultural context when reviewing this passage. Today, we are going to be talking about history of head coverings, the church history of the topic of head coverings. And then we're also going to be discussing um, some different modern practices for head coverings among different um, sects of Christianity. And then finally, we're going to discuss about what the context was in the Corinthian church. Before we get into all of that, we just want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you're listening in, um, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever. And if you would like to find more information, you can head over to our website, thrivetheology.com for blog posts, every episode we've ever done, the resources we link and all that sort of thing as well. All right, before we get started, a couple disclaimers, same as last week. This is an in-house debate, not a salvation issue. Um, We're going to bring up a couple different sides of it and you get to make your own decision. It doesn't mean you're saved or not. Um, there are large groups of people on both sides of this situation who ha- cover their head or don't cover their head. We know people who do that still. We know people who don't. Um, and we're going to take our time working through this subject. This is part two in what we think will be a four-part series on head coverings, and we've gone really, really deep. So our goal is to provide you with as much information as possible so that you can make your own informed decision. Let's get into it. All right. So first up, we're going to be talking about the history of head coverings. One argument that Bethany and I came across in our research um, for head coverings is that this is something the church has always done. Um, So we're going to sort of deal with that um, concept and also whether or not that is a good enough reason to continue to wear a head covering. One thing that I always want to ask when I'm studying a topic in scripture is what did this mean to the original audience? That's a good um, question to ask yourself. And of course, we know that the original audience for the majority of scripture was a Jewish audience. Now, at the time of writing 1 Corinthians, the church was very, very young and Gentiles were being converted to Christianity as well. So when Paul is writing to these different churches, he's writing not only to the Jewish Christians, but also the Gentile Christians in those congregations. So first we're going to talk about the Jewish history of head coverings. So a question that we're going to ask is what did Jewish women do with head coverings? How did they actually understand the concept of covering one's head? So there are actually no laws in the Torah about women needing to cover their heads for religious or other reasons. Out of the 613 laws in the Torah, none of them are about how women should cover their heads based on marital status, societal status, or anything else. One um, Jewish website I was reading said this, While there are no references to wearing a head covering in the Torah and no explicit statements in Jewish legal sources about covering the head, among some Jews, this custom has taken on the force of religious law. Um, Now that's talking about 
the modern Jewish perspective of head coverings. Um, and right now we're dealing with a history, but the reason I included that is to just further um, strengthen the argument that in the Torah, there are no laws explicitly stating whether or not a woman should cover her head. The concept is alluded to, however, in Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31, which details the ritual of Sota, which was what God prescribed for determining whether or not a woman had committed adultery. This is based on her husband's suspicion and there being no witnesses to it. This law mentions that the priest shall unbind the hair of the woman whose fidelity is in question. Therefore, rabbis believe that married women should cover their hair because if you have to unbind it or uncover it to do this test, then obviously they had their hair covered in the first place. Um, Philo of Alexandria references the Torah law about the ritual of Sota, calling the head covering being taken off of the Jewish woman's head a symbol of modesty. The Greek word for modesty here refers to an attitude of humility and the ability to feel shamed. Yeah, that's not like a sexual modesty. Right. So this word for modesty is the same word that Paul used in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, which is the famous verse about um, a woman not braiding her hair or wearing fine jewelry. It does not refer to sexual modesty, but rather an outward expression of a humble and modest attitude. We don't have a lot of proof for what Jewish women did because Jews tend, tended to avoid making pictures like paintings or carvings because of the no idols commandment. Um, and Muslims are actually similar to this as well. So just as a culture, they didn't have a lot of pictures of themselves. More so that they didn't have any pictures of the human form. So if you look at a lot of these different ancient um, cultures who didn't do this, they have a lot of geometric patterns in their churches, on the mosaic, on the floor, because they couldn't do faces, so they did different patterns. There is an ancient Jewish synagogue in Syria, which does have paintings showing Jewish men with shaved faces and no tassels on their garments. Um, you'll remember that in the law, men were to wear tassels on their garments to sort of um, distinguish themselves. The presence of pictures and differences in dress shows that this was probably a more liberal synagogue. The fact that they even had pictures to begin with, um, and then those pictures, what they depicted, sort of confirmed the archaeologists' suspicions that this was a more liberal place of meeting. So in these pictures, the men are bareheaded, meaning they don't have a covering on their head, and the women do have head coverings. So even in a more liberal Jewish synagogue, there is evidence for women wearing head coverings while men are not. However, this type of dress was culturally typical for the area of Syria at that time. There are other depictions of Jews from the time of Abraham without head coverings, dressed in what we would typically think of as Egyptian, meaning like a headband exposed shoulder. Now, this could be artistic liberty, but we can at least gather that at least some of the women of Palestine did not cover their heads. Um, at this point, point, remember, they're not really Jews, they're Hebrews at this time, or some like Semitic peoples. Um, they wouldn't be called Jews until the southern kingdom of Judah, um, and they would be called Hebrews after Abraham. And there's a lot of Egyptian influence. Abraham was there a couple of times. Um, then they go back and they're there for 400 years. So we can imagine that there's a lot of influence on them. It's entirely possible that Jewish women covered their heads because it was normal in the known world at that time and that surrounding nations did it as well. 
the climate would also have been conducive to this practice. So even now, if we look at different cultures that are in more desert lands, they have a lot of layers because it protects against sun and sand, and they're made out of cotton, which is breathable, so they're actually a lot more cool than having everything uncovered. Whereas like when we work out in the hot sun here, we tend to like take stuff off to be cooler, whereas their fabrics, it was cooler to have things on. Okay, so nowadays, if you see a Jewish person wearing a head covering, you're probably seeing a man wearing what is called a kippah. So this is that little round, it's like a miniature hat that Jewish men wear right on the crown of their head. Um, And these became popular among Jewish men in the second century AD. So this is after Paul has written to the Corinthians. This is 200 years after Christ that these became popular. The Talmud, which is a work about Jewish law, does not require that the head be covered. The Talmud has a lot of Jewish law in it that is um, extra biblical, and even the Talmud does not say that the head needs to be covered. However, the practice is hinted at. Um, It says to, quote, cover your head in order that the fear of heaven may be upon you. So Orthodox Jewish men may wear their kippahs all the time, except when you're sleeping or, you know, in the shower while non-Orthodox Jews may only wear them while praying or for holidays. So it's like a prayer shawl or prayer, prayer scarf. In more progressive Jewish communities, some women have started to also wear kippahs, which is often a more feminine design, but it's, you know, doing both. There are even some progressive modern Jewish groups that can have women be rabbis. Nowadays, the kippah has become more of a sign of one's Judaism than a sign of respect or reverence before God. So Orthodox Jewish women do cover their hair and then non-Orthodox Jewish women may only do so during prayer, similar to what the Jewish men are doing, as Bethany just mentioned. In non-Orthodox or more progressive circles of Christian, of uh, Judaism rather, it is um, really considered an optional thing whether or not you want to cover your head and at what time you're covering your head. If it's just um, for prayer or if it's throughout the day. It seems to be a largely traditional practice for Jews that has just evolved into a sign of religion and sometimes marital status. It is seen as having some spiritual significance, like being under God's authority, but it doesn't really seem to be the main reason. It really seems as if for Jews, it has become like a symbol of their Judaism, um, like a religious sign, rather than like we are doing this because we are biblically mandated to. Now, keep in mind that modern non-Messianic Jews don't regard the New Testament as being the Bible at all. Um, They are only following the Old Testament because they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, so they have no reason to to follow the teachings of him and his followers. So when a Jewish person is wearing a head covering, it's not because of the first Corinthians passage. Um, it's, it's literally because of their tradition. Um, and even the Torah doesn't tell them to. So it's, it's more like an, an added on thing that they just have been doing for a long time. Yeah. 
Um, I think I've mentioned this before, but I was in a world religions class and my group had a group study on Judaism. And so I did a lot of time looking at YouTube videos on how to tie an Orthodox Jewish headscarf way too many hours. I know like 15 different ways to tie this thing. Um, it was actually really fun to spend that time, but it was interesting to watch these videos and see, hear people's reasons for why they're doing it. And even though the Torah doesn't specifically say that, um, the Jewish, like the modern Jewish communities, they will consider the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are additional rabbinic writings as like pretty close to scripture, not scripture itself, but really close and authoritative in their lives. Yeah. So just saying like the Talmud did hint at the practice of covering your hair. And so that's why you might see Orthodox Jewish women who wear wigs. So they have their own hair under this wig of fake hair and that would be following the practice. Or they might have a headscarf or they might just have like a head turban or there's this whole practice of like wrapping up different shawls or scarves over your head so that like you look like you have more hair underneath it. And it's actually really pretty. Um, but it seems to be, like Emily said, more of a cultural Jewish thing that's more fun to do because you're Jewish rather than a specific mandate by their scriptures. I came across the practice too of wearing a wig as a head covering and that really confused me a lot because because if you're wearing a wig, nobody else knows that that's not your real hair. I mean, you do. You can. I think you can tell a wig sometimes. Maybe sometimes, but I, I did come across some research where some rabbis actually say, no, wearing a wig does not count because it looks too much like your real hair and people can't tell. Like, it, it looks too real. So, like, it's no longer, it, it's just covering up your hair, but it doesn't look like you're covering your hair, um, which was my kind of concern and confusion. And I think that the reasons that a Protestant Christian would have for covering their hair would be completely defeated by wearing a wig. Yes, I agree. And especially like, and also in the Roman and Greek world, like the Jewish people are the only ones I saw who would like consider a wig to be a head covering um, over their natural hair. We are now on to modern head covering practices. Um, most of the different denominations that you would know of that wear head coverings would be considered Anabaptist. And if you're not quite sure what that means, go ahead and check out our series from last summer on different denominations in the church. We talk about um, the different Anabaptist denominations that come from that and kind of what their basis is for. Head covering practices vary a lot between the Anabaptists, which would be the Amish, the Mennonite, the Brethren, Plain Quakers, Hutterites, etc., in their communities. Mostly a head covering is used to show separateness from the world and unity with fellow believers. Another reason that they would use head coverings is modesty, though this applies to all dress, not just head coverings. The 1 Corinthians 11 passage that we've been talking about is considered to be a biblical command for appropriate Christian dress among these communities. Um, so different Anabaptist traditions have different rules for married and unmarried women. So for example, some have no head covering until you're married and then you wear a head covering. Others have young girls wearing head coverings. And then when they get married, they just like change the color or style of their head covering. So a lot of the time when you see um, Amish or Mennonites, they're not wearing wedding rings. That's because their head covering is used as a symbol of their marital status. Um, and it also shows like solidarity and unity within their own community.
So what was going on in the Corinthian church? Now we're going to get into some speculation, some ideas to kind of give a background of why Paul might have written this. Here is what we do know. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul was writing in order to deal with various issues. He actually spends four chapters writing about how the Corinthian Christians should gather as a body. There's a lot we don't know about this text, but there are some things that we do know. There were women who were leading by praying and prophesying in the New Testament church. That's pretty clear. And Paul's instruction is specific to praying and prophesying. It is possible women were doing this in the church because it was a common practice among the pagan religions, but Paul's not saying sit down and shut up. He's just saying, here's a way to do it. We also know that there was definitely equality between men and women in the early church local gatherings, but Paul is also fighting for gender distinction in these gatherings. So he is not making any difference in terms of the value or equality of men and women, but he is saying like, God made you a man and you a woman, and you need to embrace those differences. Ultimately, Paul is really concerned with God getting the glory in these gatherings. There's different things he deals with, and it's always from the perspective of like, hey, you guys are doing this and it's wrong because it is taking away from the glory of God when you are meeting together. You're making it about yourselves or other people or whatever, um, and it needs to be about Jesus. So Paul assumes gender equality in this text. People who use this passage to make women secondary participants in the church are misusing the passage. And unfortunately, it is history for women to be considered second-class citizens, both inside and outside the church. But that's not what Paul intended at all. Um, A lot of people will use this passage to say, see, like women can't do anything in the church or women, you know, can't do anything without their husband's approval. And that's just simply not what Paul is saying at all. He is addressing a way of, of, of dress in the church, and that's what he's dealing with right now. And there are other passages that also support Paul's view of gender equality in the church. So there are some possible issues with this text. As we mentioned before, in some pagan religions, women would sometimes, quote, prophesy. And while they were doing this, they would let down their hair, because remember, letting down your hair is in, is an intimate thing. They would let down their hair to show intimacy with the gods or the god that they're prophesying or speaking for. It's quite possible that new converts were bringing this practice into the Christian church as well, and they were creating an issue, distracting others from worship. So if you can imagine, usually letting your hair down is an invitation for like a sexual Come hither. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Letting your hair down is a come hither thing. And this woman comes in, she has a head covering on, she comes in, and then she stands up, uncovers her hair, which all the men are instantly wide-eyed. And then she starts speaking for God because that's what she's used to. So her, in her mind, this is how I worship God. This is how I've always worshiped God. Now I just know the real God. And so I'm going to worship him the way that, you know, I have before. That can be, it would have been very, very distracting. So in, in, in fact, even in some of these pagan religions, part of the worship might've been taking your hair down and then like moving your head about and waving it about kind of like a, think of a mosh pit, I guess. Um, you like swing your hair around and like, that's a form of worship, um, for these pagan religions. And so they're bringing that into the church. I'm sure you can imagine just how distracting and disturbing and weirding out that would be if it happened in our modern church. So if anything that Bethany just said is 
confusing or new to you, go back and listen to our first episode. We go into depth there about the Greek and Roman customs and what women um, covered their hair for and all that sort of thing. So go check that out um, if you want to learn more about that. Another thing that was causing some issues was the liberty of these women. And by liberty, we don't mean our God-given freedom, but we mean like when we take that God-given freedom and do what we want with it instead of what God wants us to do with it. Um, So these women could have been taking on different forms of the feminist movement that was happening in the Roman and Greek cultures at that time. Again, we talk about that in our last episode. And they could have really been blurring the lines of gender differences which is very not biblical. In the Bible, we know that God created both genders. He created them with purpose. Um, He created them both to be reflections of himself. And so when we blur those lines, we are dishonoring something that God created. This could have also been an issue in the church because head coverings were so deeply ingrained in the culture of both the public and family life lives. Um, So not wearing them could have been destroying the Christian witness and causing rebellion against the empire. However, we think this is unlikely because as we've already discussed, there was a lot of ambiguity around head coverings and there seemed to be just as many women who not, who didn't wear head coverings as there were who did um, for a variety of reasons. So it's, it's unlikely that Paul is telling the Corinthian church to cover their heads simply because other people are seeing these Christian women rock around without head coverings. Um, he never references the outside world. He's talking about, hey, only when we're talking about praying and prophesying, we're talking about when you gather. So that doesn't seem like a biblical idea. But that all being said, next week, we are going to be going deep into the passage itself. So we wanted to give you guys some background this week for what we're going to be discussing next week um, when we go through the passage verse by verse. So keep all this in mind for next week. You can always re-listen if you need a refresh before next week. And yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into it next week. Okay, so that is the end of our second episode here. Um, as a conclusion, we do have two recommended resources for you. The first is an article about have traditionalist views of head coverings. And the second is a podcast from Anthem Ventura, which is a church. Um, really great podcast in my opinion and the first like seven minutes of it are like lit I loved it Um, and this will give you a really good uh, idea of the basics of the view and some people who have really parsed out this whole issue and done it in a sermon to preach their church which we don't often hear about so we were excited to find those that is all for today tune in next time for part three of our head coverings series bye bye